She calls herself, Cummings calls herself a transgender patriot, <laughs> quote unquote. Yeah. The Marxist thugs that are in America attacking people all over this country. You see it happening everywhere. It has nothing to do with Charlottesville. That is absolutely ridiculous. I do not support white supremacy. White supremacy is not allowed at my rally. We do not want racist people there. Fuck out my way, will you see me? I'm rolling with the LGBT. Fuck out my way, will you see me? I'm rolling with the LGBT. Who has, who has problems with the quote-unquote radical violent leftists who describes themselves as Antifa. So this is like beef with the Antifa. Crew. They're always clashing, yeah. Anti-fascists go out there and they say, oh my god, white supremacists, they're marching on our town. And then you look at Amber Cummings and the Facebook group that they make or the event page for whatever, you know, skirmish they're about to have. And it's usually something like no to Marxism. Right. Pornography, cultural Marxism, and the corruption of the innocence of our youth. Berkeley's That's teaching, the name of the protest. Yeah, Berkeley's teaching our kids Marxism, and we got to stop that, uh, which is funny. You know, because so. Marxism for them is what? Like, just like oppression? I think it's more like the cultural Marxism kind of thing you hear with the alt-right all the time. Like Gramsci is kind of used, like, I guess, abused. Or is it just like Marxism equals like PC politics for them? It is, it is, yeah. That's essentially what it is. So. Well, PC politics yeah. apparently also originated in Stalinism. I don't remember where this argument is, but it's Maybe like, that's the connection, like... yeah. Maybe they don't have the theoretical tools to, like, you know, oppose PC politics. I guess that's easy. I don't. I don't know. I mean, this. It, it, yeah, this woman's a right winger, and the people that she's opposing don't sound like they have any vision of socialism. So I am not sure where to stand in all of this. But I, mean, I do think it's interesting that you have like Amber Cummings and and Caitlyn Jenner and a lot of trans activists like on Trump's side. Yeah, I do find that interesting. Yeah, but it's because of like defending the norms that allow for their particular identities, right? or their politics don't necessarily need to conflate with the assumptions that people have of like trans people, assuming that somehow trans people are all Democratic Party supporters. I don't know what else like to say about that. It's just like assuming that like this kind of sexual transformation people go through somehow puts them on the left or the red lib left or the red libs, uh, when in fact, right, they can separate their identity from their politics. Or their sexual orientation or their sexual desire from their political convictions. Right. I mean, pro- pro- for the best, I mean, I don't, I don't know. When did sex become so boring to talk about? If there's anything like making your boner go down is to like bring up like Marxism in the bedroom or something. I'm sure there are plenty of listeners that will disagree with that, but God bless your little hearts. I hope you're having sex. As long as you're having sex. Yeah. <laughs> Privilege talk is just recompense, you know? Like, sex isn't fun anymore. It's all rape or something, you know, just return to Dorkin. Oh, and people don't like big dicks. People don't like big dicks, oh. apparently, which, okay. All right. Well, that's a read on Red Scare podcast. <laughs> I don't want to meet anyone with a big dick ever, personally. No, they don't like they don't like big dicks because they don't know how to suck cock, yeah. and they think that big dicks can't go. Anyway, it's the mechanics that they don't understand. But I think it's an anti-sex. To me, they when don't I like hear gagging. when I hear like a woman, a straight woman, saying she doesn't like a big dick, I, it's like equivalent to hearing someone say they think kale tastes good. <laughs> I'm just like, you're lying to yourself. I see what you did there. <laughs> or like people who are vegans, but they just have like eating disorders. Ooh. You know, <laughs> you just want to diet. <laughs> you like cock, you just don't know how to suck it. Let me just holler at you for a second. <laughs> I don't believe that you don't think bacon tastes good. <laughs> it, does. it does taste good. <laughs> yes, it does. Bacon is the big dick in case people don't get that. Yeah. Everything I need some potty training.
money missing, have to ask him what arrest on me Before I call my bitches up, they say yes, auntie Judge one of the us, they gon' bring some thugs Judge one of my trash, cut your heel up your ass But judge your last man, cause she don't want you bad men Judge one of the days, they drag you from Z to A And shout out to the vibes, you ain't gotta pick a side And if you in a closet, shorty, you ain't gotta hide Better make these bitches sick when they see you And if a bitch won't beef, give a beast to Stripper right in front of me, I hope she watch the ass She looking at my fan gates, but they don't wanna smash there's a there's a great interview with Lou Reed, you know, back when people still rock and rolled, right? And it's an Australian TV interview, and they are asking him all sorts of questions. And I I always say I always say to people like, if we could get back to the Lou Reed attitude to homosexuality, trans, whatever, because he had it right. And they're interviewing him, and they got all these questions. Uh, Lou, I noticed you sing a lot about transvestites and uh, and homosexuality in your in your lyrics. Uh, are you a transvestite or a homosexual? He goes, I don't know. Sometimes, what does it matter? What does that have to do with my music? And, it's, <laughs> and it really it really is this attitude of like, I like to suck a cock, so go fuck yourself. <laughs> we don't we don't have that anymore. It's yeah, this, that's pretty it's good. This, that's it has good to be this. <laughs> loved became transgender would it affect your reception of their jokes would it even matter today we get to sit down with comedian will franken self-described one-man monty python who made his start in the san francisco bay area and new york comedy scenes before relocating to london in 2013 for almost a year in 2015 will went by sarah Hi, I'm Sarah, and I'm going to be doing some character comedy for you this evening. I'm also transgender, so I don't want you thinking this is a character as well. I'm going to be joined by William Lushbaugh out of Platypus Berkeley. He and I are both former stand-up comedians, as well as Pam Nagalis, of course, my co-host, out of Platypus Berlin. Stay with us. Say that a good show is like a fuck and a bad show is like jerking off and I want to fuck you guys. <laughs> Especially this age, people need to fuck more. I heard, I heard that the millennials aren't having sex. You know, it reminds me of one foot of the cuckoo's nest, right? Who's seen one foot of the cuckoo's nest, right? Yeah, yeah, you should be out there bird, dog, and chicks. What are you doing? It's like we're in a fucking insane asylum. Nobody's fucking anymore. <laughs> Here's the thing with the arts, right? And this is what I use to, to describe the Sarah thing. I'm a huge Beatles fan. And the, the Beatles went through these phases. You know, they had marijuana, then they did LSD, then they went off and studied meditation under the Maharishi. But nobody said at any point, that's it, you have to be acid heads forever. Uh, you, you have to be uh, followers of the Maharishi forever. And times have changed now. And, and I describe Sarah as just like, it was just something I experimented with. At the same time, I know it's not real. That's, that's, that's another thing. And I, I think a lot of the, the politicization that's happened around this issue has kind of, I hate to say it, taken away the fun. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. What do you mean you it's know, not they, real? What's that? What do you mean it's not real? Well, part of the, the cross-dresser appeal is that you're not supposed to do it. You know, what, what, not, not saying that society must punish you or whatever, but that it's forbidden. It, it's like Rocky Horror Picture Show, Creature of the Night. Mm -hmm. But now it's, it's been mainstreamed so much that it doesn't, it, it means nothing, to be honest with you. It, it's like, so, so the seven months I was Sarah, it was like, I, I basically did everything that you could do within reason. You know, I, I, I was asked to speak at women's meetings. I was on female-only nights, you know. And then at the end of the day, it was like, you know. But I knew all the time I was, I was never going to get rid of my penis. 
So I knew I was a man. That was the thing. And I told, when I was interviewed by the Guardian, you know, I was very careful in my words. I said, look, this was an environmental thing. It wasn't, there's nothing innate about it. I wasn't born this way. It was uh, a, a father who's, my first images of manhood was it was very violent. It was very scary. The first audiences I ever had were women. When he was out of the house, m me and my sisters, we could breathe. There was no fear. And I started impersonating my father. So I associated women with safety, comfort, and all that stuff. And I, you know, when I was five years old, they dressed me up and it kind of stuck. You know, but I told the Guardian all that, and what the Guardian did, they just said, like, I'm not afraid anymore, and they made their Oprah Winfrey story out of it, and next thing you know, I was stuck. Yeah. I mean, I guess this is, like, this is kind of an interesting thing for me, because a long time ago, when I first learned about men cross-dressing, I had, I was, like, 11, and I had, like, read something about it, and it said that men who cross-dress weren't necessarily attracted to men, and I was like, I was like, oh, oh, okay, like that's different. And then like now, like I watch a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race, and like basically all of the boys are gay, um, yeah. or there's like recently been like a transsexual person um, who considers herself to be a she who was born yeah. biologically as a man. And I was like, oh, okay, that's different. And so it like kind of threw me because I read one of the articles, like Audrey forwarded some articles about your career and you say that you're attracted to women. And I was like, oh, yeah. okay. So like, is he does he consider himself to be like a crossdresser or like transsexual? And like, I actually was confused about what is it that you felt or like, why did you feel like you need to wear women's clothing? Or is it like a performative part? Of it, I moved. I, I got out of a relationship. I moved to a different flat, and I remember I was unpacking my stuff, and I thought, "Fuck it, let's you know, let's spend the day like this in this new neighborhood." There's always this idea of a new neighborhood. Nobody knows you, so let's do it. And then I found that I was making people who only knew me as Sarah because there's a certain logic to all this. Like I don't get the people who have a beard and then they wear a skirt and they say that they're non-binary. Like, you know, I hate to say it, it sounds old-fashioned, but in the good old days of cross-dressing. You had the dressed up as a woman, and you dressed up no, as a man. No, the gender fuck kind of thing. Yeah, where it's like going to extremes yeah. with gender. It's not about androgyny or anything. Yeah, see, my my thing was that there's a certain logic to it all. And I thought, well, if I'm going to dress up like this, I don't want to go, hello, I'm Will. So I, had, I, I, had, I got a name. Yeah. And people in the East End of London only knew me as that person. And it be, kind of became like the movie, movie Tootsie, where... You know, I had a certain group of friends who knew me as Will in North London and then down in the East, and it just got really confusing. So on my birthday, I just decided, fuck it, just change the name. I didn't think it was that big a deal. So I went on Facebook and changed the name, but I forgot how fucking important social media is to the world. Next thing you know, the Guardian <laughs> calls, Independent calls. It's this breaking story. And I thought, you know, and I, I was trying to, you try to explain to them something like, you know, I'm not born this way, but I'll see where it goes. Yeah. And that's what I was saying. I, w I would see where it goes. But people, People don't get that, and especially artists. They don't understand about experimentation, about let's see where this goes. Mm -hmm. you know, well, like, uh, Go on, sorry. Or just, uh, yeah, like, I was familiar with your comedy, like, prior to, to you being Sarah, you know, Sarah Franken. Yeah. And so, and I'm, I think this might have been an initial reaction that a lot of people had, where they were wondering, because of your comedy, it's a lot of characters, like, is this yeah. just another character, you know? I believe that was mentioned in, like, the Guardian article. So I was curious, like, how many people, like, mainly probably, like, left-leaning comedians have kind of accused you of, like, just doing a hoax for six months? Like, have you gotten any pushback for from that, thinking, like, oh, it wasn't sincere? Well, now that yeah. you become more openly right-wing, I guess, with your support for Brexit and Trump, in their eyes, I mean. You know, to be honest with you, not really. I, I tell you what, like, th those awards I gave that mocked the state of comedy that was when it first the first guy to kick off brought that brought it up but he didn't bring it up like i'd faked it he brought it up to, because he was nominated for an award called the gilded memoir and that's that's for people who have like 10 minutes of comedy and then they they do enough my dad was mean to me shit material to make it a friend show <laughs> mm -hmm. so he man his fucking pride so he just jumped in and he goes your show last year could have been nominated and he he didn't see the show but see he but he assumed that it was all about when i was 5 i wore a dress so he yeah. but but very rarely i think like every now and then people ask me if i if i was taking the piss but not not that much i mean just like uh 
Do you th- do you think you were able to? Because you're the thing about you switching to Sarah is that your comedy style and material stayed the same. You didn't yeah. do the whole like I wore a dress thing. Yeah. <laughs> and on a positive note, a transgender woman has won her right to have her prostate cancer referred to as breast cancer. <laughs> Doctors have been advised to refer to her prostate as a misplaced tit. She has another breast that looks like a scrotum, but actually it really is a breast. That one is healthy, but the one in her ass is not. It's a great day for transgender rights. Well, every time I have prostate cancer, she must be off your fucking nut. I'm a bird! Shut up, tip me off, she's a little cancer. It's a great day for prostate cancer, transgender victim. Do you think you were able to get away with more offensive material as Sarah, as opposed to being Will? Mm, I think so, actually. I, I, there might be a video online of this, I'm not sure, but I think, I think a little bit, yeah. BBC looks back at the history of pussy. <laughs> we go live now to Winchester Cathedral. Winchester Cathedral was founded on this site in 942 AD because of pussy. <laughs> In, ten, in 1072, it was uh, expanded, also because of pussy. In 1092, it was officially consecrated by the bishops. Was that because of pussy? No, 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 no. The bishops were gay, of course. But I had all this press, and I thought, I thought this is going to be, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell out every night. This would be, you know, and I thought, fuck it, if, it, if, it was, if this is what it took to fucking get me, you know, known, you know, fuck it. And, yeah. and, and I found that people... Like, I would run into people in, in Scotland, and they go, I haven't seen your show, but I'm definitely going to go see it. And you just, I just want to thank you, you're so brave, and you're so courageous. Yeah. And, and I really think that a lot of people just read the Guardian article and thought, fuck it, I don't need to go to the show because it'll be yeah. about this. And so yeah. in, in some ways it backfired. There is a um, reduction of people, like in, especially we see this in comedy a lot today, where there is this whatever identity checklist you can sort of mark yeah. off, that becomes a proxy for like the actual quality of their stand-up. Absolutely. So it's like, how many identity check boxes have they ticked off versus like, are they funny? You know, like that's just it's... replaced it somehow. And it's it's kind of led to a sad state of stand-up. There's a special recently, Nanette, the Aussie comic, Hannah oh, Gadsby. Know, yeah. She won the award. She won 10 grand, yeah. At the Fringe, 10 yeah. Grand, yeah. Comedy more used to, you know, throw away jokes about priests being pedophiles and Trump grabbing the pussy. I don't have time for that shit. I don't. Do you know who used to be a uh, easy punchline? Monica Lewinsky. Maybe if comedians had done their job properly and made fun of the man who abused his power, then perhaps we might have had a middle-aged woman with an appropriate amount of experience in the White House. Instead, as we do, a man who openly admitted to sexually assaulting vulnerable young women because he could. That's what I was taking the piss out of, those fucking yeah. awards. I mean, this, I said this thing about the Scarlett Johansson shit, you know, that, that uh, she was supposed to play a, a woman pretending yeah. to be a man, right. but now they're saying a woman pretending to be a man should be, should be played by a woman pretending to be a man. Yeah. yeah. And, then, <laughs> and, this, and then some prick from Las Vegas comes in and says, why do you have to say this? And I said, I, the reason this is funny, because the punchline was uh, Pixar is using real animals to do the voices of cartoon animals now. <laughs> that was the punchline. <laughs> Most people like it, and it's most. Well, okay, yeah. No, I was gonna say about like the Scarlett Johansson. I read this article in Them, which I didn't know, but apparently it's like some queer cultural blog shit. And they're just complaining about how you know she was insensitive. She like didn't know how to deal with it. Her whatever, yeah. whatever. It just goes on and complains. But then it gets into like the nitty gritty. It's just like. Well, like, you know, like, the reason why this is a problem is that, yeah. like, there's no historical authenticity. And if you're going to yeah. tell the story of this person, of this trans person, like, would you, you want that historical authenticity? And then it goes further, and it's like, and there are these actors who are transgendered, and they're not getting gigs. And then, mm. like, these women come along, and they're going to get the gigs. And I was like, oh, Okay, so, like, this is just, like, a racket. Like, you're just like, hey, like, we want jobs, too, you know? Could you, like, fucking make some room for it? And 
the argument that this is like somehow authentic or that it's like corresponds to like the historical legitimacy of the film it yeah. sounds just like a lot of bullshit it's it's like i actually would respect the argument more if it was just like well hey listen trans people need jobs too they yeah. need mm. like acting careers yeah so like maybe like if you're gonna make a film about a trans person yeah, maybe use it as an opportunity to give this person a job. That's like a much better argument than being like, well, like she's not like authentically like the character and that's why she should not work. Like I wonder yeah. if you could just make it, you know, more real. Yeah, because I mean, no one no one cares about that. Yeah. I mean Etta James was played by Beyonce, which is like that's not authentic at all. That's, <laughs> you know? real, that's really impressive. Well, but the authenticity <laughs> argument also is essentialist, right? If gender is a construct and these people love Judith Butler and whatever, it's like, well, then why are you arguing for someone to be fixed as this or that gender? Mm. Like, if this well, identity really is something that is per- purely performative. I got Jordan Peterson's book. I don't know if you guys have read that. Oh, book. no. Well, no. <laughs> right, God right on. damn it. Oh, Christ. Come on. It, I, think it, I think it should be required reading for young men. I think oh, it's, I, no. <laughs> yeah. God have you read damn it. it. You read yeah, have you read it? Have you read it? Self-help I read it. book with a clean your room or something. You must not have a penis, Will. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I got I'm very I'm a very jealous person and when when he when he came out so here's the thing I've been fighting this shit for 20 years like what I, the the religious people I fought in my hometown right. I fought these little the, the Christians and I I have been through all that I got from Edinburgh friends he was like I heard you make fun of Islam I'm talking to this guy for 45 minutes well well I'm a satirist you know and I make fun of religion I mean the first characters I ever made fun of in my small town in Missouri were religious people, you know, and I don't like, uh, you know, Christopher Hitchens guy, you know what I'm saying? They're gone. They're gone. Now, now they... I don't want to cut you off, but that's what I was going to say. Like, how I first knew of you was, yeah. like, wearing a green military jacket with a bunch of pins on it and, like, being, if you know, by default, kind of a part of, like, a cultural left or something, but, like, not what it is today, but just, ge- like, generally, yeah. like, you weren't, like, a Pat Robertson-style conservative. Like... no. You weren't a Reagan conservative. You never were. That's, that's absurd. This is funny. I, I went to... Because, you know, when you're on the road, you stay... You, you know, you're at the mercy of people who give you a, a sofa to sleep on sometimes. And I, I went to a little town in Staffordshire, and this, this guy had heard about me through the awards, just through the writings, and he said, oh, you're welcome to stay at mine. As soon as I got over to his house, he said, man, you're, you're like a contrarian. You're, and he was an old-school communist. But of the old left, not this mm-hmm. whatever this shit is now. They said you're like a fucking contrarian. You just you just go against whatever you know. Somebody says up, you say down, and he, and he said yes, yeah, but I'm a conservative as well. And he goes, no, you're not. You're kind. And he just like insisted. He, he was a psychologist, right? And yeah. he, he insisted that I was just a contrarian. I just like to you know raise hell. But after after three after three hours of talking to this guy and having cigarettes and stuff, at one point he goes, wait a second, you really are a conservative. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a cultural conservative well what does you know, that I'm, mean unpack that what does that mean i was tell i told some there was a pub out here that they called itself the trump the trump arms in honor of uh trump coming and i didn't think there was going to be anybody down there. and i went down there to you know see it was fucking packed and there was there was one very affluent west london lady who i was talking to and and i kept describing <laughs> myself as white trash I said, well, I'm, I'm white trash. He goes, don't call yourself that. That's this. You shouldn't call yourself. I said, no, you have to understand, deplorable. That's how we won that fucking election. The moment she called us, it was over. She was finished. Like a source of pride. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, for punk, sure. Punk rock. Working class right. scum. Brexit right supporters? Yeah. Woo! This is obvious. It's rock and roll. It comes right to this. It's rock and roll. I, I like to belong to a big bureaucratic body because I'm young. <laughs> We're not having sex anymore. We're all well, and doesn't it also like because with your own background growing up like in a trailer and that sort of thing in the rural area, like uh, doesn't it? If if people say you know you can't call yourself this or that, it's almost like pressuring you to deny like the reality of your upbringing and like you should feel well, bad for yeah. it or something. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think what a lot of people, first off, I think I always think of myself as somebody who mm-hmm. slipped through the cracks. I was the first one to go to university for whatever good it did me. I was the first one to leave the state, leave the country, except for my dad who went to Vietnam. 
Um, but most people who come from my background who get to the big city, the first thing they do is they try to sell themselves out. They try to they want to distance themselves so far from where they came from. Yeah. And and I had that in my twenties briefly when I went to New York from yeah. a small town. And it was a yeah. brief moment about I wished I was a New Yorker, but you know. But yeah. then I lost that real quick. San Francisco, I gotta tell you, living in San Francisco made me uh love where I come from. The the hatred and the and the the smear tactics that they used out there to that whole broad area of the country. Yeah. Kind of turned me into what I you know Why do you like, at least my experience in comedy has only been in America and I know you've done comedy here. So why do you yeah. think most American comedians are just Democrats? Well it's the same reason I think a lot of them out here are labor supporters. They um there seems to be it's it's the broader field of arts. They they seem to think that and I don't know where the fuck this happened, but somewhere along the way, it was just by default. It's almost like you need, like you have to be. Yeah, it's like you're saying, like you have to be a Democrat to be an artist. Hey, I just made a painting. Are you a Democrat? No. Well, it's not a painting. It, it, <laughs> yeah. it's so reductive. But, but it's also, oh uh, yeah. I was just want to know, like specifically, when that happened. Like, when did it just become the norm that all of these comedians were Democrats? I don't, know, it's, I don't know, from what I remember, maybe, maybe the... I'll tell you what, here's the thing. No, this is going to be too off the mark. I was thinking about the first time I heard of political correctness was when Andrew Dice Clay disappeared. Because when I was 14, mm. I, thought, I thought he was cool, and all of a sudden he disappeared. I said, well, so what happened? <laughs> that was the first time I heard political correctness. Uh. And I go, I go, whatever this political correctness shit is, I fucking hate it. Because of Dice, that's interesting. Because, yeah. yeah, they took Dice. I mean, I was like 13, 14 mm. years old. But he, he vanished, and I remember asking somebody, I said, whatever that is, I fucking hate it. Mm-hmm. But Le- Lenny Bruce, I mean, this fucking Guardian guy was interviewing me at a Brexit party, and I thought, why am I talking to the enemy? But <laughs> he, said, he said, if Lenny Bruce was around today, he wouldn't be making fun of Islam. I said, of course he would. Of course he fucking would. Mm. I mean, this man died for his contrarianism. You know? Well, he got in so, trouble with the cops over obscenity, and this is when the free speech movement was happening in here, here in Berkeley, and that sort of thing. But like it, you know, Paul Krasner and the Realist, that publication, Lenny Bruce contributed to it. Uh, yeah. A host of uh, people, like in the yippie sort of movement in the '60s and the '70s, contributed to okay. it. But you know, arguably, I think you can make a case that like people uh, with that sort of orientation towards political correctness or free speech or whatever haven't changed. It's like the times that have changed around them in a lot of I ways. Think, I, think, I think another thing, if I may, and I think this might answer part of that question, is uh, this egalitarianism in the arts, which I think social media and all this stuff has, has helped. Like, I want to be an artist. What do I have to do? Well, you have to make some art and you have to be liberal. And I, I, think, that's what, I think a lot of people actually who get into comedy don't actually have any strong political opinions. No. Yeah, You're totally if you right, see yeah. the the idiots that they were protesting against Trump, they don't even know what the fuck they're protesting. Yeah, but it's 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 like the same thing, like a, a nice pair of shoes. I want the same pair of shoes, and who doesn't want to be an artist? Because that means you're deep. But another yeah. question, or I guess like, do you think most like audiences in America and the UK for comedy, do you think they themselves are like default Democrats or Labour Party people? No, I get, no, I don't necessarily, and I, this really breaks my heart because I, <clears throat> I've not played the north of England for a long time, and it, I love the north of England because it's very working class, and uh, I haven't booked it, in a while, and I realized because the gate, the people who book the gigs, they want to be like London liberals, so mm. they 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 try to out liberal the liberals, you know, yeah. and because they're the gate, they're the gatekeepers. These uh, working class audiences up there, they don't get to see me. I never talk mm. down to my audience. You know, I go out there, I do Leibniz references. I don't care if you look like a bunch of shaved-headed goons, football hooligans. I'm going to fucking do what I write. And they go for it. I happen to be very optimistic about people's yeah. ability to, you know, it's just institutions like the BBC or little little pedantic bookers who go like, I like you, but my audience wouldn't understand you. They're the same kind of assholes who say they didn't know what they were voting for with Brexit. Trina said when she was just five years old, there was nothing happened at all Every time she put on the radio there was... In the evening standards calling me going, what did Eddie Izzard do to you? 
you know, so it was trans on trans, uh, a bit. Oh, no. <laughs> no, but he's yeah. not trans. He doesn't identify as trans. He's yeah, a cross-dresser. He's he's a cross-dresser. He cross-dresser. says so on It's a different stage. category. Like... She started dancing to that fine, fine music. You know her life is saved by rock and roll. I'm just experimenting. I understand. I like. I don't give a shit. You do what you want to do. You want to cut off your dick, cut off your dick. I don't really care. But I just want to know one thing. You keep apologizing for it. Like I, just, I was just trying it out for a little bit. Okay. But why did yeah. you try it out? Because why did you try it. it out? It was that simple. Right. Why? Why did you want to? What? What about it? Why did you not want to wear your dick all of a sudden? Why did you want to like put some some clothes on to look like a female? Maybe that, maybe that's what makes me an artist. Punk rock. have engulfed the capital with over a hundred thousand people flooding the street. Together against Trump, demonstrators have now marched to central London's Trafalgar Square. Well, police say the square is full to capacity. Activists have been forced to flood onto nearby streets. Donald Trump himself has just had tea with the Queen in Windsor. The President and First Lady Melania Trump were greeted by a guard of honour and the US national anthem was played. And now for a quick platypus report from the anti-Trump protest that happened last month in London. Lola Rojas sits down with our UK members, Rory Hannigan and Patrick Maguire, to reflect on what their impressions of the protest were and what does it say about the state of politics in the UK today. Take a listen. My feeling with the protest was the idea behind it, I think, was to give a notion of like a carnival of resistance or something. That was the day-to-day for what people were talking about. So there's this um, anxiety that people have about normalizing Trump, right? Right, right. And so the idea is to be subversive, right? Yeah, yeah. To kind of give people a sense of like a state of emergency or something to kind of really demonstrate that we're freaking out about this. It's not normal. It's um, it's really scary. Wow. I mean, there's all these kind of listicles coming out about the most, the most like insulting placards or whatever. Yeah, what were some of those? I suppose the worst one for me was the um, what's it, Hitler? What is a sort of like potato chip in the UK? There was one that had, you know, a sort of a wig on top and the face and then a little Hitler moustache and it just looked rather sad. <laughs> of course. The resistance kind of protest or like the women's march were all, all these ones about Trump having tiny hands and so <laughs> this kind of variation that came up on that is keep your tiny hands off our queen. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Which is sublimated erotic fantasy if ever there were one. Yeah. But... Um, <laughs> Of the other placards I sort of saw, a lot saying things like make racism bad again, you know, which also seems to you know, come back to these sort of vibrant militants, seems to draw upon these sort of quint- quintessentially 60s ideas. Yeah, I was having a conversation with a member of the International Bolshevik Tendency, uh-huh. who are what you'd call an orthodox Trotskyist group. Right, right. And I guess we both kind of noticed the dominance of, for example, identity politics on, on the march and on the demo, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where we kind of disagreed because, like, it seemed to me that a lot of these forms of protest and political forms do come back to this 1960s moment as Padraig raised but it seemed to me that we're still stuck with these in some sense or that like people's ability to learn positively from changes in capitalism it seems to have been lost in some sense and this is where I was kind of having a disagreement with a member of the IBT who thought actually no there were kind of positive programmatic lessons learned from the 1960s so yeah, what about this Corbyn speech? How did Corbyn present himself at the protest? He sort of waved the identity politics banner or flag, right? Boilerplate Corbyn to a certain extent. Our message to our visitor is we are united in our hope for a world of justice, not division. We're united in our hope to end racism and misogyny. We're united in hope for all our diversity. 
Well, didn't the whole like hope thing with Obama actually not work out? Why is it that he's just like appealing to hope again? Mm-hmm. Haven't we gone down that rabbit hole and ended up with the crisis of neoliberalism that brought us Trump? I mean, I guess this is the right, the real context to this protest is Trump came to meet May. But yeah, that it just served to kind of bolster Corbyn and Corbyn's chance to give his sort of very generic boilerplate, like you said, speech to end racism and misogyny, as if anybody would disagree with that. It's interesting. I mean, there's, I guess, like the political context at the minute in the UK is um, more broadly Brexit, but we seem to have reached a particular stage in that process. So the Prime Minister, Theresa May, for example, has... um, basically come out in favour of a more or less soft Brexit and is kind of manoeuvring within party politics on that basis. Which is interesting because like it, it still allows her to like play off the Labour Party against the right wing, like hard Brexit people in the Tory party. So she can threaten the hard Brexiteers with Corbyn and she can threaten Corbyn with the hard Brexiteers in order to manoeuvre into a good position. Triangulation. That's called triangulation. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's interesting. So it's kind of like you've got the you've got the kind of the politics going on and the manoeuvring and then you've got people out on the streets fantasizing about uh, Trump laying his hands on the Queen or whatever. <laughs> and it's just, it does feel like two completely different worlds. It's kind of very hard to see how you would politicize the anti-Trump protests in any kind of meaningfully political way. Oh, that was the other thing, right? There were tons of signs for like, Obama, we miss you and stuff, right? Barack, come back. Yeah. Which just shows how the Democratic Party is truly international. And opposition to Trump just means, yeah, support for the Democrats. With regards to, like, the international versus the national, sometimes with Brexit, it feels people kind of treat it in terms of policy at the expense of the politics. Policy in terms of, oh, are we going to get a hard Brexit? Or, right. Like, what's the relationship with the EU going to look? Are we still going to be in the single market? That sort of thing. Which is okay, but, like, what about the actual politics? Because it seems like we are seeing a period of political realignment. I guess we have to pay more attention to um, how people are actually manoeuvring, how politicians are actually manoeuvring. Right, right. With Boris Johnson and David Davis, who have just, yeah, been like the most high profile resignations probably so far in um, in May's government. We have to see that in terms of not just are they, like, have they lost the battle for hard Brexit or something, but like, what do these uh, resignations and realignments actually mean in terms of how politics is changing? Just on that point about changing politics, one of the sort of issues that came up during the Trump's visit was his criticism of May's Brexit policies, which he just published. I think at one point he said he had told her how to do Brexit, but she hadn't listened. Right. Proposals were quite weird in one sense. They were very modest, given that they're opening gambits, because they they only sort of make specific provisions for British manufacturing and industry, very little reference to services, finance, and things like that, which sort of struck me of course it's the manifestation of her red Toryism. she's looking to like protect british industry and sort of traditional working class jobs um in, like the north of england and so on whereas like corbyn seems to have moved towards cosmopolitan in a negative sense urban services and like young professionals and that especially in and around like london which he references well in his speech right and that's very important that's very important to point out uh who's trying to serve or make politics that might serve and benefit the working class you know, we've, you've already made the point about um, the Democrats being a truly international party, which is kind of how it feels. I mean, like one way that's expressed now is compared to, for example, the anti-war protests in the mid-2000s is you'll get a lot less um, overt anti-Americanism, I think. So you won't get quite so much like flag burning or that sort of thing. In fact, there will be like appeals to um, the fact that, you know, Hillary won the won the popular like uh, the popular vote, that sort of thing. We actually saw quite a few like American flags in like the uh, protests. So. so yeah, it seems to be pointing just in the direction of the Democrats or in the direction of the Labour Party. If they're going to change anyway, then it just seems that is going to become more prominent. It's going to be just like more and more clearly bound up with these political parties. Yeah, it certainly seems to just completely demonstrate the complete liquidation of anything that would qualify leftist politics. Exactly. In the sort of traditional sense of utopianism, of like expanding the horizon of what is possible in society, what kind of visions and and ideas 
can influence like a future left. Andy, is it fair to say that this is a, a left-wing rally? You know, it's Labour, Liberal supporters. This is Liberal Britain flexing its muscles, but it, it doesn't travel beyond that, does it? Do you know what, what I've seen today is it's an incredibly diverse group and there, there probably are a lot of left-wing groups here but I wouldn't say exclusively. I think this is about people who have said hate no more. We've had enough of a politics of hate, we have had enough of a religion of hate and the fact that the two are married together and Donald Trump needs to come to an end. There's a lot going on today. Yeah. Like going yeah, I mean it will make no difference but we've had a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Saw Jeremy Corbyn. We saw Jeremy. Saw the floating baby Trump. Yeah. Added gin. Yeah. What more do you want? lot of pressure on you specifically to be a one-issue voter and how do you respond how do you deal with that I totally agree with you a lot in our community are and they were very upset that I you know um, I was a Republican and because this is a subject that's evolving I think pretty rapidly for a lot of people that may change after your book comes out but do you think it's possible for people to be people of goodwill people of faith people of generous spirits but to be confused at least or baffled and say, I'm not exactly sure I understand this, but still be good people. They do not understand gender identity. They understand sexuality. Right. You know, the old saying is, sexuality is who you sleep with. You right. know, gender identity is who do you go to bed as. It's a totally different subject, and you cannot compare sexuality and gender identity. And it's a hard thing. Honestly, I've been fighting this war for the last couple of years, and I don't even think in my lifetime most people will get it. All right. Hello. <laughs> hello. Hi. Hello. Hello. My name is Pam Nogales, and I'm here with Lori Rojas. Say hi, Lori. Oh, hi, guys. <laughs> Audrey Crescenti. What's up? And joining us is Susie Bogenthaler. Hello. Yes. Hello, Susie. Susie is from our Chicago chapter. She's at the School of the Air Institute of Chicago chapter specifically. And she's also our regional coordinator for the Midwest in the United States. Woohoo! And she's joining us today to talk about sexual emancipation. But we thought that it would be interesting for us to talk to Susie about how her past in the queer scene in Chicago had informed or has informed her curiosity about the left and Marxism and platypus. So what, I mean, what was the connection? How did you, how did you find platypus? <laughs> I found platypus specifically because I was uh, living with my good friend Nunzia. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Who is now a uh, a member in London at LSE, and we were living together while he was first encountering platypus. You know, he would come home and talk to me about this recruitment. And be like, there were these weird like Leninists, <laughs> <laughs> and so how, I mean, where that comes into my own interest in leftism and how platypus sort of intercepted with my own discouragement from queer politics is I was like a weird like very confused anarchist mm -hmm. um, and very inactive anarchist which mm -hmm. is, which just comes from like the sort of the way in which uh, subculture kind of um, acts as like a surrogate for leftism or left organization and it has mm -hmm. like this confused uh, sort of soft ideology of like anarchism that's also just being a democrat. It's pretty common though, right? To the anarchist politics in the queer scene. Uh, yeah, of course. And so I was, yeah, I was like this confused anarchist and so I was just like, what, there's people reading like Lenin? Why? <laughs> um, right, 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 right. And then I met like Joseph and Carrie and started coming to reading group. And uh, mm -hmm. I was actually talking about this last night how uh, throughout my, my queerness and throughout my anarchism, I was like really secretly into Nietzsche and just secretly like reading Nietzsche the whole time. <laughs> and so it, it was like that triangulation with platypus that sucked me in, um, mm -hmm. yeah. as well as from my own like ambivalence and confusion, like being clarified. If you were to define queer politics today, 
Like, what is queer politics? You know, I might not know what queer politics are today, um, meaning, like, since the national legalization of gay marriage in America. Mm. I can't think of the last big queer political thing to happen since Caitlyn Jenner came out and she yeah. was still a Republican. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's maybe just what, the, that's just the end of queer politics. And it is, it was already polytest, but it's more so just polytest in getting people to like uh, have they, them pronouns recognized at your company's HR meeting. So then maybe we can talk about the queer scene, because you're right, like it's sort of questionable whether or not it's a politics, although maybe some people would defend it as such. But in terms of the queer scene in Chicago, like what was that like and what did it mean to be part of it? I guess what it meant, um, I guess I could talk about my attempt to actually organize um, something queer, which was a uh, music festival that's still going on every year. It was a punk festival specifically called Fed Up Fest that uh, myself and some friends organized the first iteration of in 2013. That was an attempt to start a punk festival by and for queer punks. And so we had like these really rigid standards for what counted as a queer punk band. Uh, we made a lot of people angry because there were especially older gay men in, like, punk bands that had been around forever, and we just sort of scoffed at them, like, that's not a queer punk band. You're just, like, a gay guy with a bass. And we actually (laughs) ran into conflict with Black and Brown Punk Fest, which was a long-standing Southside punk festival for, by and for, Black and Brown people. And just, like, the way that we both... um, really harshly demarcated our identitarian, like, standards uh, made us, like, yeah, come into conflict. And I, th- I think they were threatening not to have black and brown that year. As a response. As a yeah, yeah. It, it turned a into, like, it turned into, like, white north side kids versus <laughs> black and brown south side kids. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I could have some guesses as to why this is the case, but what was the ostensible uh, reason for those two things competing? Is it just like turf wars or something? Was it purely about inclusivity? I can't even remember, honestly. I think it's because I think it's because the black and brown punk kids were just like generally less rigid about their like standards for things, and so the fact that we were being so rigid in our own like curation of the event, I think that's what sparked the conflict but i actually don't remember the particularities of it right now you know when you're like oh those are just two gay guys with a base and like they're not queer what was your criteria for queerness the criteria was uh didactic lyrics about sexual liberation or like you know just aesthetically like wearing you know shorter cut off jeans That was the criteria. And yeah, it was the aesthetic and being able to uh, get in line with the political line, which was sort of just like a vague, like queer nation pseudo separatism. Mm-hmm. And what this all amounted to in the end was a three day festival that was like pretty good. People liked it and people came out for it. And then we raised a bunch of money for a uh, homeless shelter for trans people that I don't think ever actually exists. Oh. So it was, I don't think it exists yet. It was for the creation of a shelter for trans people. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we were giving our the money that we made to an NGO. Yeah. I wanted to kind of get a sense for what the Chicago queer scene that like, you came out of looked like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what it, what it looked like in 2013 was like a very harsh pseudo-separatism. Um, and what it looks like now, I think it's a little bit more relaxed, but also exhausted and confused. Mm-hmm. I dated this anarchist kid who was part of the queer scene and we had like an open relationship and whatever. And like, so I was kind of exposed to his scene and went to a few like, also like punk shows or squat shows with different types of music and events like that, that were very much connected to the kind of broader leftist political scene in Chicago, like even like some union organizing. I think that there was in that sense, like more overlap between an official anarchist scene and the queer scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was also, in, at that time, like um, like an anarchist book fair that might still be running, and there was like the after party of that anarchist book fair was like at one of these squats, queer squats. And it was basically a sex party in the basement area that turned out to be like, I remember like the guy that I was dating, like 
coming home like I decided not to go I was like I don't know what this is going to be like whatever maybe like I should just not go like you go fine but like he came home really upset because should have gone <laughs> yeah well no because basically <laughs> one guy like one guy got the shit beaten out of him um by his comrades colleagues I don't know what to call it for his friends because he like crossed the line during the sex where he somehow like in, imposed himself on one woman that was not into whatever he did. The details of that are not clear to him. And then they like immediately auto policed and like when she reacted yeah. against him, they just beat the shit out of him. But like it was like a big drama thing that kind of like broke the scene apart after like they beat the shit out of this guy. Right. Um, instead of calling the cops or whatever, because that would have been obviously not like the appropriate thing according to that scene, they just immediately reacted and well, there are other friend. things that you can do other than calling them cops and beating the shit out of someone. Yeah, that is, I mean, that is something that happens. That is a very real, like, picture of what these scenes look like. And I think things have changed over the past five years or so. I'm not super involved in any kind of queer subculture right now, but it seems like things are qualitatively different in that, you know, people will maybe still beat someone up for like crossing a sexual boundary that they didn't know they crossed, but they'll be way more confused about why they're doing it. people justify like queerness in whatever in either these scenes or in the kind of like pseudo academic left scenes like when they talk about the quote-unquote eternal homosexual or they they talk about like queerness being something that is like pre-capitalist and was always there and was just disrupted by capitalism what happens when you talk about sexuality in this way is that then capitalism or capitalist society is an obstacle to like realizing one's own sexual liberation and you can't really talk about how how capitalist society may hold some potential for realizing your sexuality in more liberatory ways than if you were left to the devices of the community or the tribe um, in pre-capitalist societies. Anyway, we started talking about this and it reminded me of the um, Leslie Feinberg the Transgender Manifesto. Um, I think the title is A Movement Whose Time Has Come. Mm -hmm. And like how they talk about the, the pre-capitalist world as somehow being more liberated. And like what, pol what kind of politics does that constitute? Like that idea um, constitute? Like are we just like, are we like willfully wanting to go back to the tribes or something? Well, not, not me. <laughs> we, depends what you mean by the way. <laughs> I don't either. I'm just like kind of left wondering like what the politics that correspond to that idea would look like. It seems like a queer identity uh, depends on the uh, shifting away of like the family as the locus of production, like an independent source of production or something. Like uh, the patriarchal nuclear family being replaced by like essentially like class society. I don't understand like the reversion to caste as like anti-capitalist since it seems like it is capitalist in the sense of like organizing communities to get a bigger piece of the pie for folks like them, whether it's, you know, race, gender, or sexuality. That seems thoroughly capitalist. Um, but then also seems like it's a reaction to it. Did I make that clear? I don't know if that was clear, but like the queer identity requires like the eradication of like the patriarchal nuclear family structure. Like that's why John D'Amelio talked about basically like industrial production opening the possibility for people to be organized along different lines rather than like requiring the family. Like women, he said like less women tend to be gay because they require, they still depend financially on men. And then more men tend to be gay because then they can they're independent already. Well, in many ways, the events that shaped our movement are the same things that shaped American society during these years. In the 1940s, for instance, World War II was critical in creating gay and lesbian communities yeah. in American cities. One of the ways I describe it in my book is to call World War II a nationwide coming out experience. 
lots of men and women, young men and women, were taken from their families uh, and had the freedom to explore being gay for the first time. They left home, they stayed in big cities during the war and after the war, and began creating a whole subculture of bars and other kinds of institutions that gave them a real sense of not being isolated, but instead being members of a community for a change. So it seems like the less dependent you are on the family, the more free you are to be queer. I'm trying to like translate this in like very lay terms. Uh, so then wouldn't that require, forgive this crude formulation, but wouldn't that require like more capitalism or something to really emancipate like a queer identity or to make it so that everyone could be free to be queer? Like you need to totally sever the umbilical cord from the nuclear right, family. Right, right. Yeah, I mean that is how it's postulated, but we don't have that analysis of capitalism in queer politics because it all comes from Foucault. Um, or it seems to, where Foucault would call for like the dissolution of the like patriarchal heteronormative family unit as the locus of activity, but because it's all just like interrelated power structures rather than as an actual historical phenomenon, um, he doesn't recognize that capitalism already does that. Yeah, or it's already like, mm. transforming the family, which is what opened up the opportunity right. for people to come out as gay or queer more openly than before. Like, it was, all, it was capitalism that it was already destroying the family, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, meaning the abolition of the family or the bourgeois family or whatever was sort of like a principle of early socialist movements. But that actually changes with the early 20th century uh, socialist politics and sort of a recognition of not just abolishing the family because that would simply actually probably be, have devastating consequences for the people who depend on the family structure, like majority of women. I mean, a queer youth that come out to their families and then are ostracized by their families are in high risk of suicide and all kinds of terrible things, right? Because in fact, the family continues to be like a base of survival for young people. And so what I find interesting is that in my limited exposure to people in the queer community, they reconstitute these families, right? With like elected mm -hmm. members of their families now, right? Like, and I mean, sometimes there's even like a figure that plays the mother and a figure that plays the, the father. Like they're, they're reconstituting these like familial roles just in like a new place, in a safer place where they can feel like they can be their quote unquote true selves um, and that they don't, you know, but so in some ways they need the safety of the family, right? Like, so it's this kind of double movement. Like I completely understand where Audrey is coming from, right? Like the freedom from the family allows a certain kind of uh, potential to explore your sexuality. Or have a personal life. Yeah. Or have a personal life that's not just about procreation. And yet because you still live in capitalism and property relations are ordered in a particular way and the family continues to be like a safe zone for a child, um, you being ousted from the family also means that you're precarious, that you're at risk, that you might be homeless. Um, and so like people recreate like familial structures, even unconsciously, right? It's not like, I don't think these people are like, I'm going to reconstitute the patriarchal family, not at all. Um, and yet they, they sort of do in, in some regard. That's the contradiction of the family under capitalism is that it's like constantly being undermined, mm -hmm. but then it's being upheld as like the only source of like intimacy and stability and meaning. And what I really wanted to talk about is this claims to authenticity because I can't like, it's very confusing to me. This right. kind of pathologizing of a human being by saying that they were born in an alternative body and then they have to get back to like some kind of true essential self. And like, is that the only way we can talk about like being trans or is that like, is it why the claims to authenticity if queerness is all about supposed to be about like transgression and moving beyond the expectations, why the claims to authenticity? I mean, I, I really, I really don't know and don't experience that so much. I guess my concern with the issue is sort of, I don't know, the general moment that we're in expressing a sort of a, a deeper crisis of like sexuality and sexual life and the capitalism that keeps advancing meaning sex itself has become like oppressive um and yeah. like that's what concerns me i think like people can do whatever they want 
definitely uh, and and try to be whoever they want. But there is a this yeah there we all come up against the limitations of becoming something else than what we are. Uh, and I think that we can all identify or relate to or to that sort of desire to be more than what we are. Uh, but like, I feel like that's sort of being expressed in particular sexual terms nowadays. Mm -hmm. Problem that that points to me, it's sort of like, what do we talk about when we feel unfree um, that could connect like all of these sort of gay identities or queer identity or trans identity to everybody that i don't know i would even say like that's the authentic experience somehow that everybody does feel like something's wrong with who we are in relation to who we want to be that's exactly it yeah i mean that's exactly it in that it's not only a crisis of sexuality but it's a crisis of authenticity and identity on the broad spectrum whereas like it you know it's stripped away what we can actually have real claims to be if we're to historically understand it um, or if we're don't, going to attempt to understand it as being outside of capitalism somehow as as transgressing capitalism historically and so it's not only a crisis of sexual identity but a crisis of of identity and authenticity to which like i think the only response that people can find is to be more authoritarian about it and more and more authoritarian about it and so the gay gene just becomes like the gay spirit the gay god <laughs> within you same with the trans gene the queer gene yeah i was gonna say i used to work for an assemblyman um who was a socially liberal um republican and uh his brother was a researcher up in oregon and he was working on the the gay gene and this was something that like he never wanted out he didn't want anyone to let this out because then people would know that he was socially liberal or something but it seems like uh this kind of renewed essentialism with respect to these questions is like just the flip side of the medicalization kind of question it's like well if you're not if you're not sick or crazy then it's it has to be in your genes and it totally bypasses the choice aspect of it or the performative aspect of it, which, you know, people like Judith Butler used to emphasize. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's gone now. So Gender was not supposed to be biologically mm -hmm. determined. No, exactly. Yeah. And then that's why you get the cis question is kind of muddied where I'm trying to remember who came out against that recently. There was a woman, I think it was in the Huffington Post or something, but she was basically saying like, yes, because, you know, I was born with like a, a pussy and I'm a woman, but I'm not cis. <laughs> um, and she was like uh, splitting hairs, but she was she was just taking issue with the fact that like you're considered um, cis just for you know sort of like identifying with whatever genitalia you have, um, because then that's another form of essentialism, where you know like the distinction between gender and sex are yet again collapsed into biology. Right. Who really like strongly identifies with whatever gender they're born or whatever gender exactly. they claim to be? It, yeah. yeah, it completely misses the point of, like, this is something that we actually do. With yeah. Same with sexuality. There's, like, the, the fright of, like, the... Of, of what one's authentic sexuality is. Where it's just, like, I mean, you might find yourself inside a man one day. And that could be completely consistent with the rest of your activity. The rest of your yeah. sexual activity if you've been, like, fucking women the entire time. You might find yourself inside yeah. a man one day and like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, mutual pleasure, right? Like the the multiple ways in which people can like engage in mutual pleasure idea has kind of like itself become a bit constrained and that's difficult to work with. I worry of the sort of the way that like all of this really revives 80s like anti-sex feminism and even persecution of people's sexual desires like like perhaps there hasn't been any big news about queer identity or trans identity since Caitlyn Jenner came out or something but right we have had me too context like these things are happening parallel to each other and yeah there's this sort of heavy policing or self-policing communities and that's what's on the table with this authoritarianism with this like sexual identitarian authoritarianism is that if you're not actually queer or if you're not actually trans and you're actually just a straight guy then you might as well be a rapist yeah that's the lesson yeah yeah, yeah. it's the absolute persecution of like heterosexual men or mm -hmm. heterosexual white it's, men. A, right. it's monstrous yeah. 
Monstrous sexuality, right? That's the way that it it's was an played. authoritarian world whirlwind. Yeah, monstrous sexuality. It's like you know Catholic bullshit. Yeah. Well, we can't solve the problem of sexual emancipation, obviously, not on this podcast, certainly, and not in Platypus, right? Oh, that's what I thought we were doing. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh yeah, sorry, came to the wrong party. Yeah. Just yeah. <laughs> shit, Platypus solves. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's not going to happen. Um, it's just that, you know, maybe like the difficulty of thinking about what sexual liberation could mean for socialists is kind of avoided in some of these scenes. And asking the question is not taboo um, because then we're not really having conversations about sexuality at all. We're just policing communities. And if we're just policing communities, then really not interested in socialism. <laughs> Does anyone have final closing words? Make, uh, make sexual emancipation great again. <laughs> Have better sex. Have more sex. Even if anything, have more sex. (laughs) Doesn't matter. Well, yeah. Yeah, have more sex. Have sex. How about we just leave it at that? Yeah, sure, why not? A really pretty alt-right trans YouTuber says, make trannies great again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Now we're going to get in trouble for that word. Jesus. You can cut that out. I'm allowed to say it. Just so so the audience knows. Yeah, that works. Yeah. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.